Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein, and I'm the host of the program. I'm being joined today by Max Chatsko. Max, how was your weekend? Pretty good, Dan, but I've spent way too much time in the last 24 hours shoveling snow, including this morning. Uh, how, how, how bad is it in Pittsburgh? Do you have a foot? No, I mean, I'm complaining mostly, but, uh, you know, I just moved into a new house. And for like the last four years, we get no accumulation. The week I move in and since then, we've gotten like almost three feet. So go figure. And uh, I am glad I'm not there. It's a nice 72 degrees here in West Palm Beach. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're going to talk, how do you invest in biotech? We, of course, are going to take your questions and comments. Feel free to share your questions and comments. But Max, I wanted to start with talking about how I spent my weekend, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, this so, is a great story. I'm looking forward to hearing this. So a mutual colleague of ours, former colleague of ours, let me know that if you volunteer at the hospital system his wife is working for, you could get vaccinated. So I signed up uh, and got on the list. I drove to Columbia, South Carolina. As I said to my wife, I'm driving to Columbia to get drugs. Uh, but I was driving to Columbia, <laughs> South Carolina. And I show up at the site and I, through a weird set of circumstances, get assigned to the head nurse of the facility. So this is a giant parking lot in a stadium with three different rows, National Guard directing traffic. They're only vaccinating healthcare workers and people 70 or older. I'm, I'm telling this a little bit just so you get a sense of how massive these operations have to be to vaccinate 330 million people. So my job for the day is taking the completed vaccine. So a pharmacist or a pharmacist student under supervision has to reconstitute the vaccine, which appears to be mixing it up a little bit in the vial. And that it's much more precise than that. And then a different pharmacy technician has to make the actual shot. I walked the shots around to all the different stations that were doing it. So I, I got 14,000 steps in, which was nice, <laughs> but it was really impressive. This site I was at on, a, on an average day vaccinates 5,000 people. It wasn't quite that busy Saturday because they're coming to an end of an age group. Um, but this was doctors, this was nurses, this was volunteers, and it's a massive operation, but it was the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Everyone was in a good mood. Everyone knew how it worked. Paperwork was in order. I mean, you know, were there, were there bumps? Absolutely. There were, you know, people who had questions that you'd have to go find a doctor and get the right answer. You know, but it was a large scale operation, a model for sort of what we need to do. But it also made me like, like proud to be an American, which is not something I felt a lot like in, <laughs> in the last few years. Um, yeah, this story is great because, you know, I think we, we always see like the picture of one person getting inoculated. But we never see like the football stadium and all the operations and the logistics of all that. And and like you have this behind the scenes story. Of, so there's some guy running all the vaccines around, you know, that's so it's, it's pretty great to see to hear this. You know, yeah. At, at points, I was literally running because you'd see like three cars backed up. And if like there was like a van from a nursing home that had like 12 people in it, you didn't want to gum up the process by not making vaccines. But I'll close on this. The entire day, one dose of vaccine was wasted. One. 
How did that happen? One needle bent before it could get put into somebody's arm. That was brought back. A doctor had to sign off on the paperwork, or perhaps it was a nurse, but someone important had to sign off on the paperwork. At the end of the day, we went around and collected all the doses, and then we consolidated from three rows to one. And as the last few people trickled in, we had that count, and they started calling people who were on tomorrow's list, or there were a couple of people outside the fence uh, that were not quite 70, but had underlying health things. Every single dose was used. They were very, very careful with that. It was just unbelievable. And you need that to happen at every stadium, at every unused movie theater parking lot. Because, Max, tell me if I'm wrong, but 330 million people, that's a lot of vaccines, right? Yeah, I mean, logistics of this and, you know, the vaccines we have right now need, need a lot of cold storage, right? Very cold temperatures. That complicates just getting to the stadium or, you know, movie theater parking lot, wherever. And, uh, but yeah, 330 million people. And then look at the whole world, right? This is the first time we need, you know, billions of doses of something yesterday. So the logistical challenges here are, uh, you know, difficult to comprehend, I think. So that brings us to our top story today. And remember, we would love your questions and comments. Uh, I will tell you, it didn't hurt. I felt a little bit of uh, soreness the next day, which is great because it made me feel like it's working. You get an appointment for your second shot at your first shot. So I will volunteer again, but I, in theory, don't have to. It was unbelievably fun, so I'm happy to do it again. I'm happy to drive to South Carolina to do it again. That is not a that is a nine or ten hour drive. It took me eleven hours to get home yesterday because there was some uh, some construction or an accident or something. Yeah, so and, love- you know, as Dan is the oldest person on our team, so if he can do it, I mean anybody can. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, I'm not quite in the 65 70 age range. I am 47, uh, and honestly, I, I want the vaccine so I could go see my elderly relatives who are going to be vaccinated. I, I had an aunt fall and I couldn't go help her because it wasn't safe. So once you're vaccinated, it is safer to be around other people. You can still pass it on. They don't know the extent of that. So you still have to wear masks until everyone has been vaccinated. But it does like, I haven't seen my mother in a year. That is going to be nice. She got vaccinated this morning uh, because she is a hospice volunteer who's over 70 years old. But that brings us to the top story. So over the last week, I saw something and it pains me as a news person because I brought this up to Max. So writing headlines is difficult. And if you work at, say, CNBC or MSNBC or CNN or wherever, but Fox Business, it doesn't matter. You are probably not a biotech person and you probably don't truly understand a lot of the stories you're looking at. So I saw a headline that said that the, uh, the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine was only 63% effective. That was the headline. And I went, ooh, that's not that good. It meets the 50% threshold. But geez, I'd much rather get Moderna or Pfizer. I got Pfizer. But Max, they didn't. that headline's kind of incorrect, right? Yeah, so I saw the press release from Johnson & Johnson. And immediately, because you know we've worked in media, I knew it was going to get taken out of context. And uh, so you know, just for, for the context, right? Uh, Moderna and the BioNTech Pfizer vaccines were both 95% effective. That's a huge, that's a high number. That's, that's way better than anyone thought. Uh, so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I think the overall efficacy number uh, was about 66% effective. Um, so that doesn't look as good in comparison, but this is apples to oranges, right? The Johnson & Johnson vaccines, one shot, and the two from uh, you know, Moderna and BioNTech, those are two shots. So you can't compare that just right off the bat there because the booster shot from the other two definitely helps to increase the efficacy. 
Um, and then you also have, you know, there's multiple efficacy numbers that Johnson & Johnson reported. They kind of got lost in the fray, right? You can't fit all that in a headline. So everybody puts the 66% in. Um, but if you dig into a little bit more of the nuance of it, you know, the Johnson & Johnson said its vaccine was 72% effective in the clinical trial that was run in the United States. Uh, it was uh, somewhere in like the 60 percentile range effective in the Latin American clinical trial. Uh, and then it was 57% effective in South Africa. So that overall number contains, you know, efficacy numbers from multiple regions with different people, um, you know, with different um, immunity to different things, which we'll get into next. Yeah, um, well, let, let, let me jump in here, Max, not, not to cut you off. But the, the thing you pointed out to me that was so illuminating is that no one who got the vaccine died or was even hospitalized. So if the goal here is to prevent death or severe illness, their vaccine is, I don't want to say 100% effective, but it does the job. So you might still get coronavirus, but you're going to get it in a manageable way, which for most people, that's a victory, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's other numbers. There's so many, like we couldn't even get to them all. Um, but yeah, 85% effective in preventing severe uh, disease from the infection. And at day 28, it was 100% effective in preventing hospitalization or death. So in, given the circumstances that we're in, right, we're in a pandemic, that's the number that's really important. Uh, and all of these numbers for all of these vaccines will actually increase as more people, uh, you know, receive vaccinations and, and build up immunity, right? Um, if if 20% of the population has been vaccinated, well, the fi- this this vaccine from Johnson & Johnson is going to be more effective because there's going to be, you know, less opportunities for everyone everywhere uh, to become infected. Uh, so this is great. And this gives us a third tool in our toolbox um, you know, for, for snuffing out the pandemic and, and trying to get back to, to normal. So let's talk logistics here. We, we, we opened the show talking about how difficult it is to vaccinate 330 million people. The Pfizer vaccine, the, the one I got this weekend, once it comes out of cold storage, it's good for six hours. So it can be, you know, just the, the vaccine can be left on a table for six hours for it to still be effective. This particular vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson, does not require the super cold temperatures and I believe it's, it's stable for longer. So is this, Max, is this a game changer? Is this the product that can be in a CVS, in a Walgreens, heck, in a Starbucks? Uh, you know, you can get your Vaxacino and your vaccine. Is this sort of the, the, the one that's going to make it possible to get to that 330 million number? Yeah, so we've heard a lot about the cold chain, which is just the temperatures you need to keep each product uh, stable for however long, right, we're measuring that. Uh, so Johnson & Johnson uses a different technology to make its vaccine. And uh, it's stable at, you know, room temperature for way longer than the one from Moderna or from Pfizer. Um, it's stable at a, in a normal freezer um, for, I think, like six months, right? So this absolutely fits into our infrastructure way better, right? This can be distributed by, um, you know, pharmacies or, or doctor's offices. It doesn't require a lot of special, um, you know, freezers or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, and one more thing that we should probably talk about is, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about the South African variants, right? Um, you know, maybe they're evading vaccines, maybe they're making vaccines less effective. But actually, if you dig into the nuance, and I haven't seen anyone actually talk about this yet. Um, you know, so Johnson & Johnson came out and said in its South African trial, uh, its vaccine was 57% effective. So one way to read that is that the South African variant, which is the most prevalent one in South Africa, uh, is evading or making this vaccine less effective. But if you understand that how this vaccine was made, 
uh, was made using something called a Dano-associated viral vector, so AAV. Um, so the thing with AAVs is these are or adenoviruses, rather, uh, they're circulating normally during cold season. So some people in some regions already have immunity to viral vectors we use, right? These are used for like gene therapies. Uh, some CRISPR therapeutics are using uh, AAVs. And Johnson & Johnson selected one uh, to, to, develop, to deliver the gene for the, um, the coronavirus, right? So in South Africa, though, we have plenty of studies that show this. Um, half or maybe even 60% of people there already have immunity uh, to this viral vector. So that might have actually been why it was less effective in South Africa. It might have had nothing to do with the new variant of the coronavirus. So I wouldn't be surprised if within the next few weeks, as Johnson & Johnson starts you know, um, adding more color and nuance to the data and releases more, if it says, hey, you know what, actually, this is more effective against the South African variant uh, than we initially thought. So uh, don't rule it out yet as being maybe the most effective against the South African variant. So we appreciate you sticking along for this. We know all this science can be difficult. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about how do you invest in biotech? How do you approach companies you don't understand? I, I, I joked about it to, to Max, but like if I start a retail company and I say, okay, here's my premise. I'm going to sell Doritos and Mountain Dew, and I'm just going to locate next to dispensaries, next to marijuana dispensaries. You could go, hey, that's a good idea. People who smoke pot will buy a lot of Doritos and Mountain Dew. Or you could go, that's ridiculous. They already bought their Doritos and Mountain Dew before they got there. But you can understand the premise. When I say to Max, hey, I'm looking at this company, Bio Super Pharmatech, uh, and I just made them up. That's probably a real company, but I, I, I intended to make them up. And they say they have the cure for cancer and they can make you three inches taller. And that's what they're working towards. What the heck does that mean? So we're going to talk about that in about a minute. But before we do that, Max, it's the first of the month. This is a very big day in the seven investing world. This means our new picks come out. And I know you have a graphic you're proud of that you want to show that illustrates what our picks look like this month. Yeah, maybe I uh, saying there it is. All right. So at first of the month, we release all of our new recommendations. Uh, you can see all the team's picks here based on industry, the risk level, investment type, all growth this month, and then company size. So we have all across the spectrum, uh, different industries, different company sizes, small cap, large cap. Uh, we have a little bit of everything. There's something for every investment style, I think, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. It's unbelievably exciting. I will say, uh, and we, we won't push it too much, my pick this month is the riskiest pick I will probably ever make. Some of the team had never heard of this company, and I am very, very strongly in belief of it. I will, when the market closes today, buy some of Max's pick, uh, and we're going to talk about that with biotech investing. This is one of the areas where if you're not an expert, it's okay to tap out. It's okay to say, you know what? I am going to look to the experts. And we're lucky. We have two on the team. We have Max. We have Manisha Sammy. Before we do that, if you want to subscribe, and I suggest you do, you get all our picks. You get invited to the new member call where we sort of walk you through how the service works. You get invited to our member calls. You get us. We answer member email. We answer your email just for viewers or for, for fans of the program. But if you're a member, we get really detailed. We get in there. This is not, we're not one of the big boys. We are a family service. Uh, we all like each other. We all like you. So if you want to join, we don't like all of you. We like most of you. <laughs> Seveninvesting.com. That's a joke. 
slash subscribe. It is really easy, $17 a month or $107 a year. That's two months free. Once you're a member, you get a referral code where if you share it with your friends and family and they join, you get months for free. We have people getting four or five years for free. With that, uh, let's pivot and talk about the ins and outs of investing in biotech. So let me ask it just right up the front. I don't understand most of the companies you're talking about. You're, you're pitching and somewhere 15, 18 minutes in, my eyes have rolled in the back of my head like a cartoon. I no longer follow it. And I just go, okay, Max and Manisha know their stuff. I'm going to add little bits of what they're buying to my portfolio. Is, is this an area where, where you should just be sort of carefully selecting an expert like you or Manisha to follow? Because I'm not sure I could do due diligence on most of the companies you're recommending. So I, my answer is yes and no. You need to follow experts, but there's some caveats to that, right? Um, you know, I think in our world today with social media and the way that information can get amplified, it's very easy for people to sound like they know what they're talking about when really they have no clue. Um, you know, <laughs> Manisha and I actually have some conversations about that. Um, you know, we're not going to name names or places, but, um, you know, we're always like, oh, man, did you see what this person published or this research report? And as people who are competent, we can look and kind of we roll our eyes at what else is getting published. So if you are interested in biotech, but maybe it's outside of your you know area of competence, it's hard to be able to know, you know who actually knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. Uh, so I see a lot of people being led astray, unfortunately, uh, by some of the bigger you know talking heads or you know people that work at the right places and then they have a bigger following, but maybe they're not really the people who should be following. So here's what I would... Uh, I was gonna say it's very easy to sound credible when you're not credible. I, you know, I, I I will say I've done some interviews based on stories I've written, where I flat out have told the interviewer all I know about this subject is in this story. So you don't ask me outside of this. I'll come off very credible until you ask one more question, and then I am not an expert in this field. So you have to be really careful, and you should look at track record. You should listen to the person when you watch Max. When you watch Manisha, when you look at what they're doing for research, you start to see their process. If you're a member and you come to one of our calls, you see these amazing presentations they give. And that's sort of better than when you see a talking head on a, on a news show for two minutes because it's really easy. I could do two minutes on a news show about absolutely anything. I could credibly talk about BioNTech or AstraZeneca if I had like 10 minutes to prepare. That is not what we're doing. You know, Max has an advanced degree. Manisha has an advanced degree. And their entire day is spent doing this. But how do you find these companies, Max? Because I know a lot of times you're betting on something pre-revenue. And I, I made my jokey retail example before. But it's really easy to look at retail and sort of plot out growth and where it could go and when it will be profitable. With, with drug approvals or medical devices, how do you sort of identify this? Yeah, in this space, right, there's no revenue, let alone earnings to look at. So um, a lot of the, you know, more traditional financial analysis of the operations kind of goes out the window. You can't use those those metrics. It's not the same thing. Uh, so you can look at evaluation and be like, this has no revenue. Why is it worth $10 billion? And it does kind of look crazy at sometimes. Um, so, you know, my approach is, um, you know, I have a bottom up approach to investing. There's also a top down approach. There's lots of different ways to do it. Uh, so my approach is I want to build a foundation by understanding the ins and outs of a technology, uh, of a method, you know, used in science. Um, so I'll read things that are maybe outside of the traditional, you know, investing uh, uh, tools, right? I'll read like scientific literature. I have uh, various, um, you know, really 
nerdy technical publications I'll read to get into it. And I really want to understand the ins and outs, the pros and the cons. You know, what are the drawbacks of the technology? Uh, too often in investing, everybody's changing the world and there's no obstacles in their way. And everyone's, you know, has the best technology ever. And we never talk about, you know, the pitfalls enough, right? It's way too optimistic, I think. Um, so I want to understand the ins and outs of the technology. Once I do that, I move up to the next layer. I want to understand the competitive landscape. Who's doing this with this technology? Are there competing technologies that are, you know, developing a same drug? Maybe that has advantages for the same disease, um, you know, and who's approaching it um, in what ways, right? Some companies are doing it better. Some companies are navigating potential obstacles better, um, you know, just doing it more um, print, like first principles approach. Uh, and then the third layer is actually get into specific companies. I'll read through the SEC filings and, and really look at their operations. So that's where I think a lot of people start. Uh, that's kind of almost where I end, uh, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so I try to like find and laser in on who's doing the best job. Uh, and then I'll, you know, um, give deeper research into those specific companies. And Max, the nature of this is it's kind mm -hmm. of a home run or die game, right? Like a lot of these companies that are either going to succeed or fail. And it's not necessarily the idea because there's also a marketing component to this. Like if two companies come out with a really good drug for, for treating diabetes, the best drug doesn't always win. So there is a lot of risk in investing in biotech. Yeah. And, you know, it's not necessarily all or nothing all the time. I think that's maybe a misconception, right? So like Manish and I really like to look at companies that have technology platforms. Uh, so if you have a technology platform, you can, if you're a drug developer, um, you know, you'll have a lot of shots on goal. If one fails or two assets fail, it's not the end of the company necessarily. Um, it makes it easier to pick yourself up from failures uh, or to pivot. So, um, you know, that makes the all or nothing approach or like it's a misconception, I think. Um, so, yeah, but but for sure, the best technology is one of the, the most difficult things I've learned as an investor is that the best technology doesn't always win. Um, you know, I didn't come up in healthcare or biopharma. I was in industrial biotech for a very long time, but there's no companies that are worth noting. So I kind of pivoted my own research into healthcare, right? Uh, but a lot of those companies have really good technology, but it's just not economical. So that's never going to take off. It's never going to be commercialized. And it's a hard thing to, to come to terms with as an investor, you know? So... So Max, as we sort of close this up, first of all, anyone wants to ask Max a question, anyone has any comments, please get them in. In theory, whatever platform you're on, if you type a question or a comment, we will be able to see it. I know for me, when I'm looking at retail or tech, I have some red flags. Uh, management not being disciplined to me is always a red flag. It's why I don't own Tesla. I don't want a CEO who's tweeting at two in the morning unless it's very, very carefully done. Someone like a John Ledger, when he was the... Uh, the CEO of T-Mobile, had a very flamboyant, outrageous social media uh, persona, but it was clearly planned. It was clearly measured. He took on his rivals. He did very much a Vince McMahon, Don King thing, but it never felt like he was like drunk tweeting at two in the morning. So for me, management is really, really important. What are your red flags when you're looking at biotech companies? Yeah, so uh, I used to be the uh, editor-in-chief of a, a bigger, a big plat conference platform. So I got to meet in uh, like entrepreneurs and startups and all kinds of things, right? Um, but over time, I kind of saw, you know, when you're a startup, right? You're, you're privately held. You need money absolutely like next month, right? So you have to tell a good story. Your technology is not really developed. You're still building out your team, all of that, right? Um, but a red flag for me is when companies rely a little bit too much on storytelling. 
And I think it's, it's a tough thing in our space um, in biotech because a lot of people don't understand it. So you can't come out and talk like you're talking to scientists. So there is a little bit of science communication that goes on in terms of, you know, dumbing it down a little bit. And there's a little bit of a marketing and, and storytelling component to it. But some companies that are publicly traded or maybe they're just never really, you know, um, commercializing something and they're never really making progress. If they're relying too much on storytelling, uh, that's usually a pretty big red flag to me. Of course, that could be hard to uh, to to find if, if you're not really uh, if this isn't your area. Right. You look at an investor presentation. It looks great. Right. Oh, they're planning on having billions in revenue one day. Yeah. Well, is that day ever coming? You know, has it been a couple of years or whatever? So. You have to um, have to hold management accountable, um, you know, when they're just relying on a good story. Max, are you looking at hundreds of companies as potential ideas or do you just have a few? Yeah, I have way too many companies. So uh, <laughs> thanks to our, our partners at Charts, uh, I have watch lists for everything. Every, I break it up by industry. So I have like a watch list for genetic medicines and there's, you know, dozens of companies in there. Um, you know, um, lab hardware, uh, gene testing, all kinds of things, right? I have watch lists for every little uh, part of what I follow. Uh, I also have watch lists in renewable energy and clean energy uh, markets as well. I'm also watching startups because there's a lot of activity in our space there. They're forming deals, they're getting acquired. They have sometimes better tech than the better known companies that are publicly traded. So uh, I follow entirely too many companies. And sometimes I'm not even really interested in I don't think they're good investments, but I just want to kind of keep a pace with what's going on in, in developments in the space. The comment pipeline has been slow, uh, so that could be a technical problem. So if you want to get to us, if you have questions for a future show, at 7investing on Twitter. Max, for what we're watching, we're going to stick with this theme here. So a company goes public, uh, and then they put out most companies, uh, Quarty, well, Every company has a requirement to do this. Some of the smaller companies don't always get there in a timely fashion, but most companies put out a earnings statement every quarter. What are you looking for in a biotech company's earnings statement? For me, I'm always looking for the story they told. Is that the story that's happening? And if it's not, do they address it? I'm never a fan of when in Q1 a company says, our big goal is to uh, increase chicken sales by 20%. And then in the second quarter, they don't mention chicken sales. Like that, that to me is a, a giant red flag. I'm trying to keep it simple. Max, what are you looking for when you read biotech earnings? Yeah, so like we were saying before, a lot of these companies don't have revenue growth or any revenue or earnings. So a lot of them actually title their you know press releases as uh, – you know, quarterly earnings and company update or and business update. Because they're like, yeah, we don't really have any earnings, you know? Um, so you want to look at, there are operating metrics that do matter. Um, you know, you want to look at like operating income. Usually it's operating loss. Um, you want to look at their cash position. You know, do they have enough money to, to get through certain clinical trials or certain, you know, uh, milestones from their pipeline? Um, so you want to look at those operating metrics. And then for the company and business updates, you know, you want to keep an eye on certain assets. Are they progressing through clinical trials? Are they enrolling patients? Are they finished enrolling? When's the are the results still on track for the timeline that they said? Um, so you want to hold you know management accountable there. And importantly for these companies, just like you just said, you want to fit each press release or each development into the bigger picture, into the context of you know what did the company say a year ago or three months ago? Uh, are they still on track? Are they hiding that they you know at the bottom of a press release in one sentence? Oh, by the way, we just continue development of this thing. Um, or maybe there's not even mentioning it at all, right? Um, you know, I covered a company for a while called Amaris, industrial biotech company. Um, you know, and they just would like always over promise and under deliver. 
they kind of like live by the press release. They, they issue a press release every four hours and, you know, they never seem to, there's like a long list of things that they've just conveniently not talked about that they were going to be the next big thing. And so you, you always want to hold management accountable, um, making sure they're still on track. You know, if, if a company's doing that, it's probably not one you want to spend a lot of time on or own. There's much better companies, you know, that are, that are on track that have trustworthy management teams uh, that you would like to, you know, be a shareholder of. I feel that way strongly about companies I follow, companies I pick. If you have a failure or almost every company in the world has dealt with the bump in the road that is coronavirus. And I am not a Southwest Airlines shareholder, but I love the way the entire pandemic they communicated. They had an open dialogue with their workers about, geez, does some of you want to take furloughs? Should we all take pay cuts? How do we not lay anybody off uh, to to customers? They communicated to me and said, hey, don't worry, we're going to extend your loyalty tier status for an extra year and a half. We're going to give you a, a head start on next year's because we know you're not going to be able to travel as much. Um, if you want a book now, the pricing is really great. Everything was really well communicated. I like that. If I go listen to a company's earnings call and it's all positive, it makes me question so there's something I'm missing here. Like it happens. I mean, Apple had an all positive earnings call because everything went phenomenally great. But I want a company to say, you know, look, great companies have failures. Starbucks, uh, you know, tried to bring, to do dinner, tried to do booze, tried to do uh, sodas. None of those worked. And it always irked me that they never mentioned them again. I always had to like track down the PR person to be like, did you get rid of dinner? And they're like, yeah, oh yeah, we did. Like, like you know, you should be press releasing. I don't want to say the bad news, but you should be forthcoming on it. Look, it's an earnings call. It's not a press release. It, it's the people who are listening are probably people who are very involved. But Kevin Eckmark has a question, Max. How many biotechs are you holding versus being on your watch list? Oh, man. Like, I, I'm not kidding when I say I'm following. I'm probably following hundreds of companies and including startups. So um, my approach for my portfolio, I, have, I make bigger bets on fewer companies. So I have a relatively concentrated portfolio. Uh, you know, Simon, if he's watching, he's always bragging about, he owns like 300 stocks or whatever, you know, Simon, uh, no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, but I don't, I don't, I own, I don't know, maybe 10 companies or so. Um, so compared to hundreds, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on, um, very small percentage. We appreciate uh, so many of you watching, but not participating today. We normally like it for more people to participate, ask questions. Uh, Wednesday's show, I'm going to be joined by Simon Erickson. Uh, Manisha Sammy, and we will take more of your biotech questions. We will talk about what's going on in the market. So if you want to send us questions, uh, I'll post something on Twitter at 7investing. We are more than happy to, you know, we don't want to be the GameStop show. We don't want to spend every show talking about like why you shouldn't be buying silver just because someone on Reddit tells you to do that. Uh, but we are, of course, going to deal with the news of the day of the market uh, at least once a week as things are a little bit herky-jerky here. But Max, with that, let's hit our finisher. This is a weird one. We are not the people who should be talking on this. But uh, a Chevron slash Exxon merger would be a smart consolidation. About a quarter think that. A mixed bag, uh, about 16% think that. A terrible idea, says 27.9%. Uh, and about 31% say it might work. Max, I'm not sure I, I love the idea of two dying, slow, very slow dying companies merging, but there are a lot of back offices. You know, you don't have to have two CFOs if you're one company. There are a lot of savings. So I tend to lean towards that maybe this is a good idea. 
Yeah. So, you know, again, there's a lot of context and nuance. Um, Chevron and Exxon that both have, or they're, you know, some of the most successful refiners. They have a lot of refining infrastructure. That's a bright spot still in the industry, you know, even if electric cars are here. Um, so, you know, combining those assets and leveraging their efficiencies there, that could be a big idea. And, you know, as much as we talk about electric cars, and I think they're going to arrive way faster than anyone expects, than anyone's projecting, um, you know, the world still does use 100 billion uh, you know, barrels or 100 million barrels a day of oil. Um, So it's not like it's, you know, it's not coal or anything yet. You know, we still use a ton of it. Uh, So there's still money here to be made. There's still businesses. It's going to be here for a pretty long time. It, 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 it is, but there's sort of no steering out of this this skid. Uh, Stock Investor says, yeah. will, they call, will they call the new entity Standard Oil? I made the joke on our Twitter. I think they should call it Exron, uh, but that is probably <laughs> not what they're going to do. So this yeah, was fun. What they should do is, is just invest in electric utilities. You know, we've already seen a lot of uh, European super majors do that. Um, I'm not, I don't know if Exxon or Chevron have done that as, as, uh, as big, I guess, as like Total or, or Shell uh, or even BP. Equinor, that used to be Stat Oil. It even just changed its name and says we're going to get into offshore wind now because they were, you know, they they developed this expertise in offshore uh, oil rigs in the North Sea. So, um, you know, that's the future. That's what they should be doing, not merging more refining assets. <laughs> the future is likely not oil. Um, so let me remind everyone: this is the first of the month. Our new picks are live. If you're a Seven Investing member. Uh, you get seven picks, uh, one from each of us. This month, it's six picks and a Best Buy because, uh, as many of you know, Austin Lieberman has uh, has moved on to exciting things. Uh, and so we should use this time to say, Austin, good luck. Today is his first day someplace else. We will miss you. Uh, he doesn't stop being our friend because he doesn't work here anymore, but we do all interact quite a bit during the day, so it will be noticeable that he's not with us. But we are working on, of course, who that seventh person will be, so... Start your guessing. No, don't do that because who knows? Um, so with that, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, it's really easy to do. It's info at seveninvesting.com. Uh, that is an email that is checked at almost all hours of the night. Uh, your question will be answered by whoever is most appropriate in our team. It's often shared in our group Slack. Hey, who's who can answer this? Uh, we can't give personal investing advice, but we can sort of uh, speak to trends, speak to what's going on. We've got amazing improvements coming up on uh, 7investing.com, our website. We've rolled some of them out, but we've got what we're calling our uh, our blog, which is going to be a lot more content from us, uh, both from members and on the free side. You can now watch this live stream live on the site, as well as archived issues. We're slowly getting transcripts up so you can search and find, hey, here's what they talked about on a previous show. You can also reach us, of course, on Twitter. That is at seven, the number seven, investing. I'm tired. It has been a long day. I, I, I can't say, Max, that I'm enjoying having to follow the price of GameStop. Again, a not great retailer or watch, watch all of this. I do think it will settle down in the next few days. Um, is it up again today? It was down 30% when we, we started the show, so it could be up 20, down 50, who knows? Um, but that's why we preach long-term investing. If you buy a good company and hold it forever, if you buy a, a basket of biotech stocks that, that Max recommended, some of those stocks are going to be home runs, and eventually you'll retire. You'll buy that house. You'll, you'll get wherever your investing goal is. The problem is 
That's not a sexy story. We, we've talked about this a lot. It is really fun to tell that story when you went to the casino and you just went on a crazy run and, you know, craps or roulette. Like, those are luck games, not skill games. Like, if I go on a nice run in blackjack, I'm going to, playing $10 hands, be like up $300 at the end of the night. Not a great story. Whereas if you go in and you put all your money on eight and eight hits, all of a sudden you're, you know, you're flying high for the night. That's not how the stock market works. It's not how casino works. Uh, for every good story, there's a hundred bad ones. Someone's not telling you. That is my lecture for the day. We'll be back Wednesday. I am Dan Klein for Max Chatsko. Thank you for watching. that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.